If 2020 has shown us anything, it's that we are a nation divided. The increasingly urgent calls for criminal justice reform and defunding the police are met with back the blue protests and calls for law and order. Back the blue! What is a blue life? They can go home, take their suits off. I can't take this black off. Black Lives Matter activists demanding to be heard are facing down white supremacist groups claiming all lives matter. I don't think it's right for me to be called a Nazi for saying that my life matters, his life matters, his life matters. If nothing else, this past year has shown us how far we are from the perfect union envisioned in our Constitution. It raises the question, what would an equitable society look like? Or to put it another way, what is the American version of the promised land each of us is yearning for? And can the law help us get there? Welcome back to Common Law and the start of our third season. I'm Risa Golubov, the Dean of the University of Virginia School of Law. And I'm Leslie Kendrick, the Vice Dean. Leslie, I'm really excited to get this season underway. And today we're talking about racial justice, but we have so much to talk about in the realm of law and equity. We'll be talking about education, criminal justice, family, economics, and more. And we have just an amazing group of faculty from law schools across the nation who are on board to help us have these conversations. So for today's episode, we have a giant in the field of race and law who will help us set the stage for the whole season. Professor Randall Kennedy of Harvard Law School has centered his work on the intersection of racial conflict and legal institutions in American life. He's the author of half a dozen books, including Race, Crime, and the Law, and The Persistence of the Color Line, Racial Politics, and the Obama Presidency. Welcome to Common Law, Randy. Thank you. When Leslie and I were talking about how to start this season, we both remembered the National Faculty Workshop that you had done this summer at UVA, where you talked about your essay on visions of racial promised lands. And the way you talk about the visions and the visions you offer up, they seem to us the perfect way to start our season and really open up our aperture as we start thinking about law and equity in a lot of different contexts this year. That reference to racial promised lands is from a speech given by Martin Luther King Jr on the last night of his life. So let's take a listen to that first. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So tell us, Randy, what is the promised land for King? Where does he think we need to get when it comes to race in America? Well, Martin Luther King Jr. is a, an interesting figure in this because... He was torn. I, I, I've seen the promised land, but he didn't tell us much about the promised land. And prior to that speech, he had made other speeches in which his view of America had darkened. He, he had become more skeptical of America and American possibilities. 
On the other hand, Martin Luther King was also the leading proponent of what you call the optimistic tradition in the 20th century. That's right. Anyone who's heard his iconic I Have a Dream speech from the 1963 March on Washington can detect that optimism. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. He spoke of his feeling that racial justice was possible in America. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. One thing that I find fascinating is that your title is Racial Promised Lands, plural, and then question mark. And you're opening up this entire vista of potential racial promised lands, including some that I would not have thought of as a form of racial promised land. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about some of the visions that you enumerate. You know, there's certain African-Americans who people focus on. I certainly have. Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King Jr., you know, Barack Obama. Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood Marshall, the great Thurgood Marshall, thank you very much. Mr. Civil Rights himself. And typically speaking, we talk about a rather truncated spectrum of ideas. So for instance, in race relations law classes and legal academia, we don't say a whole lot about white supremacist promised lands. We'll mention, you know, John C. Calhoun maybe, you know, briefly. We'll mention, you know, a, a George Wallace briefly, but we don't really take them very seriously. We don't, we don't read their speeches. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust. I talk about George Wallace, 1963, and he says, And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Segregation forever. The ideas animating white supremacy, very important ideas. Yes, and as was clear here in Charlottesville in the summer of 2017, White supremacy is something that is very much still alive in the United States today, and it's been something that's always been a part of this nation, even though it was born in democracy. I mean, the United States of America has been, and to a large degree still is, a pigmentocracy. So if you're trying to get a grasp of race relations and race relations law, it seems to me that you have to take on board people who were outwardly, openly, unapologetically, proudly white supremacists. But what about Marcus Garvey? Can we do it? Who was a black nationalist who basically said to African-Americans, listen, the United States of America is a white man's country that's not gonna change. Right. Marcus Garvey said that black Americans should basically create their own government or leave the country altogether. America under George Washington did it. 
Africa with 400 million black people can do it. If you cannot do it, if you are not prepared to do it, then you will die. What about the nation of Islam under the honorable Elijah Muhammad? I mean, you know, he, he thought that it was a delusion to think that black people would ever be viewed as truly equal citizens of the United States. We don't want nothing but the freedom to get somewhere to ourselves and own some of this earth that we can call ours. And in 1966, there's Stokely Carmichael, right? He gives a speech, which he later turns into the book Black Power. And in that speech, he basically says racial integration is a delusion. This country has been feeding us a thalatomide drug of integration. And that some Negroes have been walking down a dream street talking about sitting next to white people. And that that does not begin to solve the problem. And in fact, he says integration is white supremacist in what he views as its assumption that things that are white are good and black people ought to try to essentially, you know, become like white people. We were never fighting for the right to integrate. We were fighting against white supremacy. These people too warrant attention. There have been many people who have followed them. Those ideas are still very much part of our uh, cultural landscape. So black power is an important promised land for some people. In talking about various promised lands, you talk about the contemporary moment, arguments and debates about prison abolition, defunding the police, that these are also visions of promised land. What are your views on that? Well, in the past couple of years, there's really been a remarkable flowering of what I would call utopian thinking. I like the impulse, actually, of utopian thinking to some extent because, well, you know what? I say that, and I'm to tell you the truth, I'm so conflicted because there, there's one aspect of utopian thinking I really like is... They're asking, what do we want? And I really think that that is important. And I don't think that actually we do that enough. That strikes me as right. You know, a lot of what we think about when we talk about race relations law is what we don't want, what the Constitution prohibits, what you're not allowed to do. That's right. You know, we don't want slavery. We don't want segregation. We're in favor of anti-discrimination. We're in favor of anti-subordination. All of that is anti, all of that is negative. We go into classes and we think about what will courts allow. We think about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments as if that was all that was possible. And utopian thinkers, forget all that. If you could wave a magic wand, what would you want? And I think that's good. Your article brought out a nice symmetry between that and Stokely Carmichael's piece, What We Want, which is That's right. the same type of affirmative vision to say, I don't want to focus on the anti, I want to focus on what is the affirmative vision here. This is what we want. And there's something very compelling about that. There is something very compelling about it. And thinking about it has made me go back to various 
speeches, cases, laws, and made me think about this. So for instance, a speech that I've been thinking about lately is the speech that John F. Kennedy gave. And in this speech, he's clearly talking to white people. There's no two ways about it. He's talking to white people. If an American, because his skin is dark, cannot eat lunch in a restaurant open to the public, if he cannot send his children to the best public school available. He says, when you look at what black people are doing, when you look at them dissenting, when you look at them protesting, and when you try to assess what they're doing, ask yourself the following question. Then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin changed and stand in his place? Who among us would then be content with the counsels of patience and delay? If you were in their shoes, what would you want? How would you want the United States structured? It seems to me that that idea of reciprocity, that's on my mind now. And I think it's partly on my mind because of the prodding of the folks who have been um, utopian-minded. I'm curious, you mentioned Thurgood Marshall earlier and you clerked for Justice Marshall. And of course, one important strain of his legal work and his legal legacy is integration, integrationist arguments that he was making and prevailing in. Um, and yet there is this concern that integration can lead to race blindness of a kind that sort of reinforces white supremacy or does not allow people to see or to adopt a more kind of anti-subordination framework. So I wonder what you learned from him and if you think there are limitations in the promised land that he was working toward. I clerked for Thurgood Marshall in the 1983 Supreme Court term. And late in the term, there was a death penalty case. And he was on the losing end. He just issued the dissent. And I remember saying to Justice Marshall, Justice Marshall, let me ask you this. You're losing a lot of the cases about which you're the most concerned, the, you know, that, that really grab your passions the most. Do you get discouraged? I mean, you're losing, you know, most of them to tell you the truth. Are you discouraged? He said, no, I'm not discouraged. He said, you gotta remember this. For most of my time as a practicing attorney, my lead case was Plessy versus Ferguson. That was my go-to case because Plessy versus Ferguson set forth separate but equal. And he said, I tried to wring as much equality out of separate but equal as I possibly could. He said, we're far away from Plessy versus Ferguson now. So no, I've seen change in my life. I think we can get more change through intelligent, persistent effort. That was Thurgood Marshall, and that's why I admire him so. I wish I had had the privilege of knowing him. I know him only as a historical figure. But so that story makes me wonder what role the law plays in these various visions of the promised land. Obviously, for 
legal liberals, for folks like Justice Marshall, the law can be a tool of progress. But I think for many of the other visions, the law is really a tool of oppression. Or maybe it's both. I don't know. But so so I'm curious how, how you think about that and where does the law fit into these visions? Well, the law is very important. The law sets the boundaries of legitimacy. In my classes, I struggle with this because there are many students who say, well, you know, what does it matter? What does Brown versus Board of Education matter if you have lots of school systems in which there's still racially identifiable schools? You have the white schools over here and you have the black schools over here and you have the Latino schools over here. And one of the things I say back to them is, oh, it matters. It matters even when the law is being violated. And let me give you an example. Early 1960s. The University of Mississippi. Meredith versus Fair. It's 100 years since Lincoln freed the slaves and a black man is trying to enroll. James Meredith applies to the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss. When Air Force veteran James Meredith tries to register, the police lines are drawn, U.S. Marshals blocked. If he had applied 15 years earlier, Ole Miss would have told James Meredith, you are not white, so sorry, we're going to exclude you. But Brown versus Board of Education is decided. Ruling in five cases in which five Negro children sought the right to go to the same schools as white children, the court said separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. Now what do the officials at the University of Mississippi say? They make up all sorts of cockamamie, ridiculous lies to exclude James Meredith. And the court system catches up with them. The court system says, admit him, and he breaks the color barrier. And James Meredith becomes a duly registered student at the University of Mississippi. The boundaries of legitimacy have changed. That made a difference for James Meredith. That has made a difference for hundreds of thousands of people after him. So I think that the question of the law is very important because, again, the law sets the boundaries of legitimacy. If I remember correctly, President Kennedy addressed that issue, and he did it in a way that I think is pretty prescient today. Americans are free and sure to disagree with the law, but not to disobey it. For any government of laws and not of men, no man, however prominent or powerful, and no mob, however unruly or boisterous, is entitled to defy a court of law. In America, there is a struggle. The law has been on the side of oppression. That's true. There's no two ways about that. On the other hand, the law has also been on the side of liberation. And that's why I tell law students they have a strategic role and an important role to play in all of this. So I'm curious, when you talk about this new moment and the folks that you're talking about now and their utopianism, using language like defunding and abolition rather than reform language, do you put them as optimists or as pessimists? Because I sense from them in their urgency that they are pessimists, right? They're pessimistic that we haven't moved as far as maybe Thurgood Marshall had thought or as far as Randy Kennedy might think, and that it turns out to be a lot harder to make progress than anyone 
had thought before. On the other hand, their utopianism, the audacity of their goals suggests that there's a place we want to get to and we see it out there. And, and that seems to suggest optimism to me. I think you make a very interesting point. I think it's sometimes hard to tease out. I mean, some of the people that I have in mind talk about revolution and they suggest that racial equality is impossible under the present regime. Anti-discrimination law, and in fact, even anti-subordination law isn't gonna cut it. We're not gonna get there if we just use the tools that one hears about in our con law classes. So in, in that sense, they are pessimistic. On the other hand, they're out in the streets. They're organizing. They're obviously putting a lot of energy into changing things. No justice, no peace! And that suggests that they believe that things can be changed. And so in another sense, they are optimistic. I mean, so it's a, it's a funny stew. No peace! I suppose that one reason why that way of structuring ideas about race. The optimism, pessimism is perhaps so much in my mind is partly autobiographical. My father, whom I revere, was a thoroughgoing pessimist. My father viewed the United States of America as a white man's country. He did not think that black Americans would ever be truly welcomed in the United States, and I grew up hearing that view. Now, he's a wonderful man, and so he, he, he left room open for disagreement, and I eagerly seized that room. And for most of my life, I have been an optimist. So that seems to be a tease, Randy. You say you've been an optimist for most of your life. That leads me to wonder, an optimism about what? I mean, after you've done all this researching and thinking about these various iterations of the promised land for your essay and now for your book, have you come to your own conclusion about what the promised land looks like? I began this essay feeling a little bit ashamed that I didn't have more of a blueprint to offer. But now that I've done this work, I'm thinking, well, maybe it's not altogether so bad that we don't, as a nation, have a blueprint. Maybe it's good that we have a loose structure. It allows for a tremendous amount of pluralism. Yes, it allows for some things that are quite awful. It allows, for instance, for you to have organizations that are expressly white supremacist. At the same time, our system allows for the counter. At the end of the day, I suggest that maybe what we have has a certain virtue to it. And I put down my pen at that point. I feel a little bit ill at ease because there's a part of me that's thinking, am I just being complacent? Have I just figured out a, you know, a fancy way of being accommodationist? There is that fear in my mind. On the other hand, you know, it seems to me that there, there is a good caution that one should have about trying to be too ambitious and trying to be too definitive. So I leave it a bit up in the air. Racial promised lands with an S because 
there's something good about it being pluralistic. Yeah, there's one other aspect of that title though. It has a question mark at the end. That question mark, will we get there? Can we get there? It's, you know, it's, it's, it's disturbing to have to ask the question, but we do have to ask the question. And, you know, we are speaking in November 2020. And I would have to say to you that um, this year has been a very taxing, very disturbing year for me. I think I'm still in the optimistic camp, but I'm a chastened optimist. I thought we had progressed more on the racial front than we have. I was mistaken. So one thing that your article raises is this idea of affirmative visions and promised lands. And there's a particular line in it that I just want to say is going to stick with me. So one thing that you write is, much is written about what we repudiate, much less is written about what we desire. Yeah. And that's an important thought to carry with us going forward. And it's been really really informative and interesting to talk with you more about the affirmative visions in your paper, so thank you. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed the conversation. This has been terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for talking with us, Randy. Be well. Bye-bye. That was Professor Randall Kennedy of Harvard Law School. The essay we talked about, Racial Promised Lands, will be the final chapter in his next book, available in the fall, titled Say It Loud and Other Essays on Race, Law, History, and Culture. Well, Risa, that was a great first interview for this new season. That was just really fascinating. I totally agree. And I have so many thoughts, you know, when we're thinking about our riff and I have too many thoughts to nail down. But in thinking about the promised lands with a question mark, I want to really talk about what role law plays. And one thing that is so striking to me, we talked with Randy about is law liberatory or oppressive. But I think that for the abolitionists and for the Black Lives Matter movement in this moment, law is a little bit irrelevant. Law has kind of failed, and what they're trying to do exists in a large part outside of law and exists in going directly to the source of institutions, of individuals, of corporations, and not using the law as a mediating institution to insist upon equity or equality in a particular realm, but to go straight to the source and kind of marginalize law and certainly litigation at the very least. That's really interesting. And I have a feeling we'll hear a lot of different views about that in a lot of different contexts over the rest of the season. All right. Should we talk about our season? Yes. Let's talk about our new season. So one of the things I'm really excited about is our title is kind of a double meaning, law and equity. And it refers back to a time in Anglo-American legal history when we actually had two different systems, the system of law and the system of equity. And when a legal remedy was inadequate, there were a whole other set of remedies and procedures that were the equitable doctrines that were separate from the legal ones. The legal ones were more rigid. They were more rule-like equitable doctrines enable a greater degree of discretion on the part of the court. So once upon a time, these were literally two different systems that one had to choose as one was thinking about what kind of case they were going to bring. And, you know, a kind of troubling implication of the old law and equity distinction was that equity had to exist independently because the law wasn't always equitable. 
And, you know, something that I think we're going to explore through the course of the season is law's relationship to equity, to racial equity, to economic equity, to gender equity. I bet there are, you know, at least some listeners who think, well, why equity, right? Why, why is that the word you chose? And clearly the, the, the double meaning is part of why we chose that. Um, but, uh, but it is also really notable, I think, that right now the conversation is really asking questions that are about the meaning of equality and the meaning of equity. And this goes to big, deep theoretical questions about what does equality mean? And does equality mean, you know, treating likes alike? Sometimes equality seems to suggest treating unlikes alike. And I think that's where equity comes in, is to say that when people are differently situated, treating them alike is actually to do a disservice and to render an injustice. And so we need to be thinking about the circumstances under which people don't have access to the same resources, don't have access to the same opportunities, and equity is the way people are increasingly talking about what is required in order to do justice in those situations. Actually, you know, Randall kind of brought up this distinction between law and equity and and recognized that the law itself has some limits. And I do think that's something that we'll probably talk about. You know, how does law relate to equity? And it's not always that law facilitates equity. Sometimes they stand in a little bit of tension with each other. It'll be interesting to see as we go through the season, to what extent has the law succeeded in marrying both law and equity together. So Risa, one last thing. You said offline that you really want to make a point of asking each of our guests this season what they think about the transition from thinking about equality to thinking about equity. Yes. In fact, we asked Randy Kennedy that question, and here is what he said about equity versus equality, which he calls egalitarianism. Egalitarianism has a lot good about it. On the other hand, you can have a sort of egalitarianism that can become actually doctrinaire, that can become a bit encrusted. When you think about equity, it's malleable. It's attentive to circumstances. It's not rigid. And so frankly, I'm drawn to the idea of equity. I I, I like it. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Me too. That wraps up this episode of Common Law. We hope you'll join us next time and throughout the season for more explorations of law and equity and how it shapes our lives. If you want to find out more about Randall Kennedy's work on race in America and much more, visit our website, commonlawpodcast.com. You'll also find all our previous episodes, links to our Twitter feed, and more. If you enjoy the podcast, we'd love it if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to the show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with University of Virginia law professor Deborah Hellman, an expert on discrimination theory. She's recently turned her attention to the algorithms that increasingly dictate our decisions. What the algorithm is doing is it's just carrying that bias forward, sort of bias in, bias out, just automating the bias. We can't wait to share that conversation with you. I'm Leslie Kendrick. And I'm Risa Galiba. See you next time. Common Law is a production of the University of Virginia School of Law and is produced by Emily Richardson Lorente and Mary Wood. Archival audio for this episode came from the Lexington Herald Leader, WFLA News Channel 8, ABC 7 Chicago, The Daily Texan, NBC News, Euronews, Bangor Daily News, and The Independent. 